With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint Sports Car 365's weekly sports car racing podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGeese joining me from Australia. Fresh off of covering the Liquamali Bathurst 12-hour, which we will be recapping here in just a couple of moments. We've got a lot of news to get to on the show this week. A great interview John was able to snag with Earl Bamber after the race. A huge weekend for him and his race team able to win in their GT3 debut. A lot of emotion from Earl, as you'd expect. So looking forward to that interview here in just a little while, plus some listener questions at the tail end of the show today. But John, what a race you had to cover, especially the end of the Bathurst 12 hour this year. Uh, as usual, it was uh, dramatic. It was uh, when you talk about the start of the race, starting in the dark, coming into the daylight, there were plenty of casualties throughout the race. And we'll talk about how we got to the end at some point. But uh, first and foremost, what a finish with Earl Bamber Motorsport winning on its GT3 debut and a starring drive at the end from young Matt Campbell, who looks like a star in the making. He's been good in this race the last couple of years, but absolutely established himself as a massive star with an a incredible drive from fifth to first in his final stint in the car. Incredible is the, the right word to call this, uh, Ryan. What, what we saw in the closing stages of the Bathurst 12-hour was amazing, um, an amazing drive by, by Matty Campbell in the Earl Bamber Motorsport Porsche, um, carving his way through the field. Um, the car was leading prior to the final round of pit stops, but Ultimately, the team elected to take new, fresh um, Pirelli tires, where the rest of the competition decided to double stint their tires and gain some time under the last round of stops under green. And they put the Porsche on the back foot. I think Campbell rejoined, I think, 25 seconds behind the the race leader, um, Jake Dennis, who was in the R Motorsport racing uh, Aston Martin, which surprised all weekend long as well in in that car's final uh, race with the V12 Vantage previous gen gt3 machine but what we saw from campbell was really epic stuff he just started clipping off cars um passing them then got to the point of Chaz modstert in the the bmw team schnitzer car made a pretty fair move i would say on modstert into the chase but um there was some contact between the two cars um the bmw slid off course a little bit uh campbell got through and shortly after the yellow came out and that neutralized everything and um, on the final restart, Campbell um, quickly got around Ma- Raffaele Marciello in a real dive bomb move into turn one. Another fair pass, in my opinion, and set his sight on Dennis. And what we saw in, in, in what was the race winning move up, a, up the top of the mountain, I think it was at Forest Elbow. Um, I've never seen a pass done there. I've never seen a move like that before. And it was, I think, like eight or seven or eight minutes to go in the race. Everybody was biting their nails, and it was it was unbelievable. And I, what a drive by this Porsche young professional. We saw him win the 24 Hours of Le Mans in GTEM, but uh, he said in the post-race press conference, this was his greatest day of his life. And I think this sort of says everything about what this race has turned into and, and what kind of an excitement you know had to be going through this, this team, this driver, um, and the, this manufacturer um, th- throughout this, this epic event. Uh, you mentioned the manufacturer. It was the first overall win for Porsche at the Bathurst 12-hour, so a nice feather in the cap 
for the Porsche brand, of course. But let's talk about those two passes, uh, a couple of them, the one on the BMW in particular that was reviewed. Uh, several of, of his passes in, in the final half hour there were uh, with a little bit of contact to, to try and make the pass happen. Ultimately, the stewards elected to make no take no action, um, and, and the passes stood. What was the general reaction from uh, the assembled media, from the drivers involved? Did you get a sense for how that decision to effectively make no decision on the part of the stewards was viewed? From my perspective, they seemed like fair passes, just like you said, but uh, curious what the paddock had to say after the race. Yeah, it seemed like the the general consensus was that they were fair. Um, I know BMW was very upset at the time um, with the incident between um, Matt and and Chaz Monster while battling for third. Um, Post-race, it seemed like they sort of conceded a little bit, realizing that the Porsche was clearly a quicker car than the BMW. And and when you sort of look at these passes, it's really difficult to, to... overtake at Bathurst. It's very much like a street circuit on steroids, you know, in, 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 in all, all their terms. And there's only a few opportunities every lap to sort of get it done. And with the differing power levels of these cars, the BMW was clearly quicker in a straight line than the Porsche. Um, um, the, the Porsche was better up at, the, up at the top of the mountain. The Aston Martin had strengths in other areas too. So there was all of these different variables at play. And yeah, you're right. There was contact definitely at the at the at the chase between the BMW and Porsche, and and actually I was interviewing Earl Pamber when they got final word that um, there's been no further action after the incident, and uh, there was a lot of uh, relief I think in that camp that you know there wasn't going to be any kind of time penalty or, or whatnot given to that car um, post race, and they got to keep the win. But um, yeah, I, I think once things cooled down, um, it was a little you know more clear cut. I know Jake Dennis wasn't the happiest over the move at the top of the mountain, but that move was not under review by stewards. And I'd have to say there was very little contact at all there. Um, if anything, it, it was, it was just unbelievable to see how he found that hole at, in that little corner and, and sort of just made a move. I, I, that takes guts. And I, I don't know, you know, he, he told us in the post-trace press conference that, you know, he was basically told to go win it or bin it, and he basically put everything on the line to, to make it happen, and um, Maddie Campbell did for sure. It made for some captivating television, an absolute classic finish to that race, uh, one that I think people were going to be talking about for a long time to come, and it really does mark Matt Campbell's ascendancy. You mentioned earlier he has already a crown jewel to his name with uh, the victory at Le Mans, but maybe doing this on home soil makes it a little extra special in the way that he did it, where clearly, even in an endurance race where it's not just one driver that is going to determine the outcome of the race in a lineup uh, of multiple drivers, he was the one that, that got it done for this young team. There's a lot of different things that make this special, and I think the the whole sports car racing world now has to stop and take notice this is going to be a driver who i think we all expect now is is going to be a force to be reckoned with for some time absolutely and he came close to winning on two previous occasions here at bathurst when he was driving for competition motorsports in a pro-am class porsche we just have to look back to last year when i believe he was the the only car that was fueled up ready to go to get to the finish of the race before the red before the red flag was given due to an accident that ultimately handed the win to the WRT Audi. 
the competition Porsche was very much in contention all race that year. The year before, uh, Matt won Pro-Am class honors for the team, I think finishing second or third overall. So he's been a star in the making already, but I, I think this race sort of, you know, put him out there in the international spotlight even more that he's going to be a definite serious threat, you know, in, in any GT race he shows up to. He's shown great speed in, in the WEC with Proton, and he's done very well in other GT3 races around the world. And um, I, I think his performance here at Bathurst um, has really proved it once again. And let's not discount his co-drivers as well. Um, co-driving the car with Dennis Olsen and Dirk Werner, they put in solid stints as well. Um, while Matt takes the spotlight, it's definitely, as you said, Ryan, a team effort around um, this whole operation that was just put together in the matter of a, a couple weeks. Um, I, I think Earl sort of got the green light to, to put EBM, you know, the GT3 program together on December 10th. And this is sort of spawning out of their Carrera Cup efforts um, in Asia. And a lot of those guys carried over, but it was very much a, a huge team effort to put everything in place. Yeah, really cool. And uh, you'll hear some of, of that from Earl in the interview in a little while, just what it means to him. Uh, really an interesting interview. So uh, looking forward to that in, in a little bit here on the program. Uh, we've talked about officiating already. Another aspect of the race in which officiating was uh, a talking point were Raffaele Marciello's comments after the race. Uh, ultimately, he, he felt like the chance for him and his Mercedes-AMG team to, to get a victory was taken away by officiating. Can you take us through his complaints, first of all, and whether or not you think they might be merited? Yeah, I spoke to him post-race about it, and he was pretty livid about the situation. Um, the, the Group of M Mercedes was handed two drive-through penalties um, during the tail end of the race, during a, a four-hour stretch of green flag running, which was remarkable around the mountain. I think it was a record um, there in, in that regard as well. But um, the first penalty was following that restart um, before the, that long green flag stretch with Maxi Book at the wheel. He was found to be weaving back and forth behind the safety car. And that's a event-specific rule that does not that prohibits drivers to weave, warm their tires, you know, more or less, um, on the, the final lap before the restart, um, once the signal's given that they're going back green. And um, that caught out a couple other cars in the race, too. It wasn't just the Group of M car, but um, nonetheless, they were given that penalty. And then a second drive-through was given for Lello, um, allegedly passing under a yellow flag. And he says there was photo evidence proving that uh, that was not the case. Um, we haven't seen that, uh, to be clear, but... Um, you know, he, he claims that it wasn't uh, he shouldn't have been penalized. And he also cited um, a penalty from the Triple Eight engineering uh, Mercedes that was actually reversed by officials earlier in the race after they showed them uh, showed the stewards some some evidence. And, I you know, I, I think it's a, a frustrating one for for that team. They 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 had the pace all race. They probably were the quickest car outright at Bathurst in, in a straight fight. Um, started on pole after the, the technical infraction for the R Motorsport uh, Aston Martin that stripped them of the, the winning the, the Alan Simonson pole trophy award. And they were actually given a, a few grid place position penalty anyway for speeding in pit lane in qualifying. But nonetheless, um, Raffaele was, was definitely upset. The Group of M team was dejected post-race, but um, walking away with second place points in the Intercontinental GT Challenge um, we have to remember the Aston Martin is not a full season entry uh, as of now for IGTC. So 
um, it's a good, um, you know, start to the year for, for the Mercedes AMG and, and the trio of, of Maxi Buch, Maxi Goats, and um, uh, Raffaele Marciello. So, yeah, Raffaele made some valid points on, on the penalties, but until we see some more conclusive evidence, I, I really rather withhold judgment on whether he was right or wrong. Yeah, fair enough. A couple other storylines to come out of the race. A lot of parity at the top of the finishing order. Six different manufacturers represented in the top seven. Um, A couple other notes. You mentioned it earlier for the Aston Martin, the final professional race for that generation of the Vantage. Same, two for the race-winning Porsche 911 GT3R. But the big storyline for me is leaving Bathurst, the struggles for Audi, which has won the Manufacturers' Championship in Intercontinental GT Challenge every single year to this point. It's clear that their goal is to try and keep that shutout going looking towards the end of this season, but they're going to have to do so uh, by digging out of a hole because it was not a smooth run on the mountain for Audi this year. No, not at all. And and I think they had fewer bullets in the gun compared to Mercedes-AMG and, and even Porsche. Um, only three Audis took the green flag after one was um, one crashed out in practice. And then the two factory-backed entries, the two Melbourne Performance Center Valvoline-sponsored um, cars, hit trouble on the mountain. Um, first, it was the number 22 car. Um, Garth Tander was at the wheel. He ran into the back of Christina Nielsen at cutting, um, caused a lot of front-end damage to the car. They had to go to the garage, um, get that fixed. They lost a bunch of laps there. And then Frederick Verwish, um had a race-ending accident in the eighth hour in that car. The number two car um, had some radio communication issues earlier in the race. Christopher Hassa ended up going to the garage in the seventh hour with a steering rack that was broken. And that cost them, I believe, six or seven laps. And they finished outside the top ten. And, yeah, really uncharacteristic day for Audi. Um, you know, it, it only takes a few little things for a lot to go wrong. And I, I think, you know... We've seen this before at the mountain, and they've sort of had bad starts to their season as well in the past and sort of always rebounded. The only difference now being is that there's a lot more manufacturer involvement, a lot more teams registered for Intercontinental, and it's going to be a lot tougher for these drivers to sort of come back in the the championship and even from the manufacturer um, standpoint as well. Well, last thing, leaving Bathurst, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Pro-Am class winner's spirit of race which picked up the victory in class and did so under trying circumstances. That team had a lot of work on their hands early in the the race weekend with a a crash in practice. Yeah, um, bouncing back from an incident um, in the second practice session on Friday, they had to rebuild the the entire car. Uh, The the front end was severely damaged. I spoke to Mateus Lauda and Pedro Lamy on Friday evening, and they said the crew's been working nonstop to try to get it all back on track. They um, they were hoping to get back on track at the end of Friday, but they elected to sort of take their time and, and get um, the car fully repaired. And it proved um, to be to work out uh, on, on Sunday with the team taking the Pro-Am class victory. It happened after the, the Sun Energy 1 Mercedes had a radiator um, issue. I guess a stone um, um, uh, punctured the radiator, caused overheating um, uh, caused the Mercedes to overheat and ultimately retired, uh, ultimately ended up in retirement for Kenny Hobble, who was the defending uh, Bronze Cup champion. So um, the Spirit of Race guys definitely benefited from that, but still it was a very strong effort for um, Lauda, Lamy, and uh, Paul Dalilana, who becomes a winner on the mountain. 
That's right, adding to several other um, accolades that he's accumulated over the course of his career. Also worth mentioning uh, from the Pro-Am ranks was the heavy crash that Tim Pappas suffered in practice as well that ultimately sent him to the hospital. We're relieved to say the injuries were not as severe as perhaps they could have been. It was kind of a dramatic scene, which you were right there for, but uh, Tim uh, sidelined at least for now with some, some fractures uh, to to a couple of different bones, and, and we're sorry to hear that, certainly, and we wish him a, a good, quick recovery. However, again, considering the, the nature of the impact, it certainly could have been a whole lot worse. There were some scary moments there, weren't there, John? Yeah, yeah. Um, Tim lost control heading into the chase and uh, made a heavy impact into the rear, into the barriers there. The car caught fire momentarily. There were no safety marshals. There was no um, fire marshals around or or corner workers to to jump into action. And actually two fans jumped over the fence with fire bottles from a corner um, stand to, to put out the fire. And um, incredible scenes there to sort of see because, you know, Tim was a bit motionless initially in the car and we didn't know what was actually happening. Um, thankfully, you know, he was, he was conscious, you know, I, I believe he was conscious the whole time, but he was probably a little bit dazed from the accident. Um, the medical crews did eventually arrive at it by nearly two minutes later. Unfortunately, though, it was a, a bit of a, uh, a delayed response time there. And I think that's something that the series officials have to look at. Um, moving forward, because when you have an incident like this, car catches fire and the driver not able to really get out of the car, especially as it turns out, he had some fractures, um, I think a fractured arm and a fractured pelvis. Um, you know, that's that's a bit scary there. And I'm glad that he's OK. I'm glad that um, everybody turned out OK in this incident. But it's a bit of a wake up call, I think, for uh, for in terms of, you know, the response time needed by by some of the for an accident of this kind of magnitude. Yeah, definitely. But thankfully, it wasn't any worse than it turned out to be. I think Tim made a a comment in the statement that was released that uh, he credited Porsche with building a strong, safe race car. We saw that on display, that's for sure. And again, a speedy recovery to Tim. I hope to see him on the grid uh, because he had a pretty ambitious racing calendar uh, planned in various series this year. So hopefully we can see him back racing before too much longer. But uh, all in all... That maybe being the black eye of the event. The rest of it, though, a whole lot of positives to take away. A great start to the Intercontinental GT Challenge season. Tons of manufacturer involvement. A thrilling race to get things kicked off. This race just continues to grow in terms of its importance and prestige. And I think this this year's edition is just going to add to, to some of that lore, John. Uh, this this is why so many people love this event and have, have people coming back year after year. Yeah, it's like I think we talk about it after every Bathurst the last couple of years. Can it get any better? And it seems to keep getting better. And and I, I really don't know when we'll reach the peak because um, it seems like we're at almost at a glory days of GT3 racing. Um, the, the growth of Intercontinental has been incredible. Um, we've seen you know three manufacturers sign up in the matter of the last couple of weeks. We have a couple more that may be signing up later in the year. Um, yeah, added with all the, the, the great on-track action at Bathurst, um, this was definitely an event to remember. 
Good stuff. And, of course, there are highlights available up at SportsCar365.com, courtesy of the series. So uh, if you missed some of the action or just want to see some of the fantastic passes uh, again, we have that for you on the website, plus all of John's fantastic coverage from over the weekend. We do need to get a break in here. And on the other side, we will return with a look at the news from sports car racing in the last week. A lot to get to. And we'll do that next on the Double Stint Podcast. Hi, this is Jordan Taylor, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. Back on Double Stint, time to discuss the news of the week. John, let's dive into it, and uh, maybe the place to begin is the results altered somewhat from the Rolex 24 at Daytona. A couple of post-race penalties that affected the podium in GT Daytona. Can you, first of all, tell us what the penalties were and how all of this came about? Yeah, so they were drive time infractions for both the, the Montaplast by Land Motorsport Audi and the WeatherTech uh, Scuderia Corsa Ferrari. These were announced by IMSA on Thursday, so four days after, uh, almost five days after the, the finish of the Rolex 24, and this came through a post-race audit by IMSA. Um, basically, Ricardo Feller did not meet the minimum drive time for um, GTD, and I believe Tony Vlander didn't meet the base drive time in the in GTD. And those drive times and base limits were all readjusted because of the red flags. I think 30 minutes um, were cut out of both of those base those drive time requirements, but those drivers still didn't complete it. And um, it affected the the land car, which finished second in the race. They basically moved to the back of the field. Um, I think they're finishing second to last now in GTD. And the Scuderia Corsa Ferrari finishes last. So uh, a big change there, I'd have to say, after, you know, a couple of days after the race. I know IMSA has a lot of data to to, to comb through and and, and everything to figure out what happens. But um, honestly, I would have sort of expected this to sort of come out a little sooner, considering you know, the, a lot of the data is, is automated, especially through the systems through Alcomel. But, um, you know, it was, I think it was a bit of a, a challenging circumstance overall because we had so much of the race under red flag. And we have to remember the final two hours was effectively red as well. And um, I think, you know, there's some varying opinions over whether this was maybe a, a fair penalty to, to give to those teams because, you know, with that amount of time be- being under red, it didn't give a team like Land a chance to put Ricardo back in the car because once the red goes comes out, you can't change drivers until you resume racing. And so it really wasn't Land's fault. It wasn't a miscalculation on their part. It was just a case of the race not resuming. Um, but at, by the other token, there was no other teams that fell afoul of this penalty. So it was just two out of the 23 GTD cars. So, you know, you could look at it both ways. Um, I'm a bit, you know, indifferent on, on whether this should have been issued or not, because if IMSA let it slip, then there could be the argument that other teams that had played the strategy right, you know, had played the rules right earlier in the race, should have, you know, might have not had the same result before the red flag came out too. So, um, a challenging one, I think, overall, and it's unfortunate it hit the land team again because this team's sort of been in the spotlight for penalties um, in IMSA races, you know, ever since they sort of arrived into the championship for the endurance races. So um, it's unfortunate, but I think IMSA had a sort of play by the book and rules are rules, um, although it's kind of out of everybody's hands. 
yeah, I'm in agreement. I think you you have to 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 call it like you see it, and and in this case, they were in breach of the rules. I think your point is a good one that this is the only these are the only two teams that have this problem. So uh, the other teams had clearly done done their homework and and done things correctly. The thing that does strike me though is this is two years in a row at this race where Land can leave saying that they were penalized and aren't really sure that they had done something wrong and that has to be frustrating from from that standpoint i think it has to be frustrating for scuderia corsa too because this is a team with championship hopes and last place points in the rolex 24 at daytona in class that's not going to be uh, an easy thing for them to overcome in a really tough gtd field as they try and, and gun for a championship this year yeah, Tony Vlander had that unfortunate accident in the very low visibility um, conditions where he ran into the, the back of another car, and um, that might have affected the drive time requirements there, too. I haven't actually done a complete deep dive onto where everything ended up, um, but yeah, from a championship perspective, it hurts them a lot as well. All right, so tough break for both of those two teams. We've got uh, the full explanation, including the statement from IMSA on uh, our website, sportscar365.com if you'd like more there. Some happier news here. We've spent a little bit of time in the last couple of shows speculating about what the GT3 grid is going to look like in the Blancpain GT World Challenge America Series this year. And a flurry of announcements this past week has us with a better idea, at least, of what some of these uh, driver lineups and entries are going to look like. Some highlights, I would say, include right Motorsports announced lineups, two cars with new Porsche 911 GT3Rs. The Pro lineup in particular is one that makes you stop and and take notice because you've got Patrick Long, a former series champion, uh, now alongside Scott Hargrove, who was the sprint champion last year. I think that Pro lineup is going to be one to, to keep an eye on this year. They'll be running a Pro-Am car as well for Anthony Imperato, Matt Campbell, who we've talked about already, and Roman Dumas will be splitting the drive time alongside Imperato this year in, uh, in, in the Pro-Am class. A couple others, uh, GMG back in GT3. James Sofronis will be back behind the wheel as one of the two drivers, joined by Brent Holden. I think that's interesting because James a little while ago, was just a couple years ago, was thinking about maybe retiring. And here he is back in, in the GT3 car, which is great to see P1 Motorsports expanding into the SRO America umbrella with J.C. Perez on a full-time basis, waiting to hear who his co-driver is going to be. We've got George Kurtz making the step up to the GT3 ranks in a Pro-Am entry alongside Colin Brown, which is really cool. So all of a sudden, John, we've got a lot more details about what the grid is going to look like in this series. And I suspect we still have a couple more announcements to come. The grid, as it's already constituted, looks pretty good. And I think all of a sudden, maybe the the, the optimism that we've been hearing from series officials, we're starting to see why as a couple of the uh, announcements are made here in the last week or so. Yeah, it's clear we're seeing growth for this year. And there were some questions initially whether we might end up with less cars on the grid um, after, I think, 12 or 13 average uh, in last year. That's certainly not the case now. Um, we're getting close to 20 entries, and this is at a, quite an achievement by SRO America, Stefan Rytel, and everybody involved, Greg Gill, um, because I think you know GT3 is a really hard market in the U.S. to to crack. We've seen the struggles in IMSA recently. Um, There's been a rebound there as well. 
And um, I, I think that it's uh, in, incredible to see these new teams signing up. You know, mind you, there are a lot of pro-am entries. There's, I don't think there's going to be a huge number of all pro. Um, we have the, the K-Pax Bentleys that'll be pro. We have the right pro car. I think Allegra will might most likely have at least one pro car. So um, our ferry is expected to return as well. So I, I, I think we're going to be in for a really good fight, um, a really nice grid and um, really tip of the hat to, to all involved because um, I personally had my doubts uh, a couple months ago whether we'd be seeing this kind of quality on the grid, and um, it looks like we're definitely going to be in for it now. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's interesting that both IMSA and the SRO America are seeing an increase in, in GT3 entries on the grid. That's that's interesting when so much of the talking points in the last couple of years has been about the cost of of running GT3 regardless of the series and, and to see both series of it making some changes and, and doing what they need to do to make it an attractive platform. I think that's really encouraging and uh, a good sign for GT3 racing stateside. How about uh, GT3 news from Intercontinental GT Challenge? I know you talked to Giorgio Sana of Lamborghini at Daytona earlier this month, and it sounds like Lamborghini, while not entered in the Continental Intercontinental GT Challenge uh, for this year. It is something that is on the Italian manufacturer's radar possibly as soon as next season. Yeah, it looks like it's um, very likely we'll see Lamborghini enter IGTC next year um, with possibly up to two teams full season. Um, Giorgio spoke very highly of the championship, and this was actually before the announcement of, uh, of a further manufacturer commitments from Ferrari, and uh, uh, Honda into the championship. So um, right now we have eight IGTC manufacturers confirmed for the year. Um, there's rumors of maybe Aston Martin stepping up in the middle of the year, um, considering the, the momentum of this championship. Um, Lamborghini for 2020 looks pretty much, you know, likely that maybe, a, uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably put it at 85 to 90% at this point. So um, this championship's really growing. And as we saw this weekend, you know, with the quality of cars on the grid, um, as the manufacturer sort of put more focus into it and they sort of support it in a, in a bigger way, I, I think that, you know, um, this is going to become the de facto sports car world championship, <laughs> more or less, in, in, in some ways. You know, we see the struggles of, of WEC and, um, recently, and there's a lot of uncertainty over what will happen in the, the long term of that championship as there's been some fluctuations um, in, in the top class and now. In, in the in the GT ranks as well. Yeah, that leads us into our final news item of the week very nicely. Uh, we talked last week about BMW's interest in various prototype options looking towards the future, but another interesting element that came from your conversation with Jens Marquardt, John, was some questions over BMW's continued commitment in GTE Pro in the World Endurance Championship. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward right now in that, as of now, BMW is not confirmed for the 2019-2020 season, so the next WEC season, which starts in September of this year. Um, Jens said there's a lot of different factors that go into decision-making process, and he um, said they're going to be evaluating everything um, most likely after Le Mans in June. So that gives a very, very short committal, um, co commitment time for the manufacturer to potentially return to GTE Pro with the M-Tech entered um, M8s. We know the cars have been very successful in the States. We just saw the, the big victory at Daytona um, with BMW Team RLL. But um, yeah, a, a bit of a concern right now, I think, in GTE Pro for, for WEC um, with the potential of losing BMW just after one year. 
Um, we know Ford is probably unlikely to continue um, beyond the super season as well um, because the the GT program has sort of come to an end, at least in Europe. Um, it looks like maybe the GT program could be extended in IMSA depending on a possible DPI program, as we've previously discussed. But um, yeah, there's a potential of losing two manufacturers in, in GTE Pro, and that would sort of put a, a further dent in into the WEC's health, I'd have to say. Speaking to some manufacturers about it, I, I was able to catch up with Pascal Zunderlin, the Porsche's director of GT Factory Motorsports, while in Bathurst over the weekend. And he didn't seem too concerned if there's a dropout of, of BMW and uh, Ford. You know, he cited that GTE Pro survived with three manufacturers, you know, for a number of years in the WEC when it was just Porsche, Ferrari and Aston Martin. And he said the quality and, and the, the health of the of the field would still be okay without the two. But I think we've sort of come used, you know, gotten used to a lot of manufacturer involvement, a lot of great battles in in both the, in the U.S. and in, in the global stage in WEC with these cars. And it would definitely be a shame to, to lose up to two manufacturers, especially at this point of the WEC's, you know, championship where, you know, there's still some uncertain future of who's going to commit to hypercar and, um, you know, what the health looks like in that front, too. Yeah, definitely an interesting time. More on that, I'm sure, in the coming weeks and months. And for more on all of those stories, plus the rest of the news from Sports Car Racing, check out sportscar365.com. Up next on the Double Stint Podcast, John's conversation with Earl Bamber post-race after a huge win for his team at the Liquamali Bathurst 12-hour. We'll talk to him about that and more coming up next on Double Stint. Hi guys, I'm Christian Fittipaldi and you're listening to Sports Car 365 Double Stage Podcast. Welcome back to Double Stint. We're here with Earl Bamber, team principal of Earl Bamber Motorsport, winning uh, in the team's GT3 debut here in the Liquamali Bathurst 12-hour. Um, what's going through your mind now? You just got off the... The team just got off the top step of the podium. A, a remarkable race, um, really gripping, really thrilling. What was going through your mind as as the team principal, team manager, sitting in the pit box in your first big race as, as in this position? Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, it's been a pretty crazy uh, month to get everything prepared. You know, in January, flat out to, uh, oh, sorry, December and January, flat out to prepare it. I'd say a massive thanks to all the guys. I mean, <clears throat> a lot of sleepless nights, everyone working absolutely night and day to prepare it um, to the maximum and to, to see what we did today. And I think it's a just reward for everybody. Um, it's the final race for the GT3R, so this was a really, really fitting send-off. We wanted to have the big goal. Obviously, it's special because Porsche's never won the uh, Bathurst 12-hour, so we really <clears throat> came with a high goal. The beginning weekend looked tough. Um, you know, obviously our top speed wasn't great, but uh, we just put our head down, and the guys, uh, they did a great strategy. And um, I have to say, I think we all agree that Matt did the drive of the weekend. Um, with the new tyres, he went flat out on it, and uh, a couple of amazing overtaking moves. And um, to pull that off for, for the team is uh, really special. I definitely have to say a huge thank you to them. Also for Porsche as well, with their support, and the opportunities that uh, they're giving to the teams to be able to represent uh, at IGTC at the highest level um, is something special as well that uh, no other manufacturer is doing so this is pretty awesome and uh, 
it's the way that uh, we're a big family and it's awesome that a lot of new guys to GT3 racing get to enjoy this and uh, I think it's going to be a big night. Yeah, I know we spoke prior to the weekend and, and you said you had high expectations for this event. Did you really think that you'd be able to go out and, and fight for, for the victory like, like this, this, this ended up happening? I mean, you never know when you first arrive, but, uh, you know, I never come here to come second and uh, it's the same like I go when I go about racing myself. So, um, you know... I, we went flat out and uh, you can see I think we've gone pretty flat out with the organization that we did I think it looked good and um, you know it was great fun all day it was a long long day and uh, yeah we're going to be back for sure I want to go to Suzuka now and uh, in Macau um, so this was this was pretty cool um, but now we've got to pack up all the, I'm not used to packing up normally I'm used to buggering off um, <laughs> so yeah I've got to worry about that used to handling loads and loads of different things okay um, so all that stuff has uh, been pretty intense. I've probably got a few more grey hairs as well. <laughs> um, but, yeah, what a dream come true for all the guys. Talk about the, the construction of this team, you know, and in such a short period of time. Um, and, and what was the inception of sort of bringing this team onto this global stage here in the Intercontinental? Yeah, so um, basically um, I started a... Two years ago, um, my brother races as well. Um, he races Carrara Cup Asia and stuff like that. And uh, we were actually going for coffee one day and he was trying to get a ride and not really making it come together. And I said to him, you know what, dude? Um, you know, he's a young driver, I think he was 23 back then. And I said, and I had the chance when I was that age to start my career with Porsche. And I said to him, I'm not going to pay for any of the racing, but I, if you can find the budget, I'll, I'll own the car for you. So unfortunately, he found the budget to to run the car so I ended up owning a car and then uh, with Racing B he struggled for sponsorship last year so um, and through one of my sponsors LKM and also the Guild Traps we had already spoken about that there's a region for a good team and um, so I thought again on the line let's start a team um, I had some good buddies from Carrera Cup so I got a, a long friend a long time friend of mine Greg Wooster um, he, he came on as team manager and and he's been incredible the whole way. I've come up with some pretty nuts ideas. The first time I wanted to run two cars in Carrera Cup, then I called him the last minute and said, oh, by the way, we're going to run three cars. Um, that was sort of the Carrera Cup story. We had our ups, we had our downs, but through the knowledge that I had with Porsche and doing the LMP1 program, I knew clear vision how I want to run it, how I want to do it. Um, and we sort of set on that path and we've been working away at it. And, um, and then, yeah, we did the Cup season. We were preparing for Cup and we discussed about and yeah again back with LKM and Giltrap they they helped me with some of the cars and, and sponsorship and through Cup it was cool I got another young Kiwi driver in so I really enjoyed helping the drivers as well and giving back because for me I struggled for many years with no sponsorship so it's all to be honest it's really cool we have to get guys in the car and help them out and give them a shot because that's what we all do this sport for is to we all love it and then uh, we said should we do Bathurst and maybe with a cup car with customers or something like that and then uh we said, no, it's one year too out, one, one year too far away. And then I was actually going to um, Sebastian to try put together a car for Lawrence, myself, um, and initially Kevin or Scott McLaughlin. And uh, I went into the meeting and we were talking and discussing and uh, I went expecting that I would drive and I came out running two cars. Um, so from there it was flat out uh, finding sponsors uh, getting everything organised and so in the phone call I gave um, Greg I said to be honest you're not going to like this you're going to hate what I'm going to say in the next word but uh, we're going to have to go and run Bathurst and um, you know everybody that's involved with this thing there's also many people back home back in Malaysia that are involved with it 
everyone said, right, okay, straight on a mission. And the amount of hours, the amount of running around, borrowing of stuff, of people's, you know, stuff was uh, pretty amazing. Also in New Zealand, and we had stuff come from Germany, we had stuff come from Malaysia, we had stuff from New Zealand, we had stuff come from Australia, all to a former GT3 team on one weekend. If you came here on Monday, you would have seen boxes for Africa ripping everything apart and we had a mountain of boxes outside here they couldn't clear the trash quick enough as we unpacked everything new and um, we were pretty on the fly I think I slept each night like two or three hours we were here 1, 2 a.m. wrapping the cars or doing something and um, you know it was just reward I think the drivers did a pretty amazing job all day I mean Matt was the, for me the hero on the mountain but it was also a strange interaction because normally I'm with them and their teammate and now exactly. I'm completely their boss so um, that was a different interaction, but they took that on. You know, it's clear, huh? Yeah, no, 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 nothing, mate. And you can see the guys are absolutely over the moon as well. So um, and I think it's really cool. It's in a 24-hour period, a 12-month uh, period again. I think the only big race we've missed out now on is uh, Daytona 24. We're here with Earl Bamber, um, team principal Earl Bamber Motorsport, winning in, in his team's GT3 debut. Obviously, in the next month, you're going to be shifting back into a driver environment for the Mobile 112 Hours of Sebring. How's that going to be for you to sort of get back behind the wheel, knowing how, how to build a team almost into a, 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 an endurance winner? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've got some good ideas about how to do it now, I guess. <laughs> um, but, you know, now we have... Um, to be honest, it doesn't stop for me. I go um, back, I go to KL for a day, pick up my stuff, then we have fitness camp, and then it's straight to Sebring testing in Feb. And then uh, and then obviously I think I have I think I have some other stuff to do, some sim stuff, and, but yeah, then it's back to Sebring. But at the same time, actually these poor guys, um, we've got four cup cars to prep next week because they get shipped on the 17th. So uh, they got shipped out to China, and we've got testing, I think, 19, 20, 21. So... Um, for us, it, it doesn't stop um, with, the, with the race team side as well. But I, to be honest, my brother's a huge part behind it as well. Um, without him by my side, I, I trust him with the thing. He's one of the only guys that I trust with the operation as well. And he's learning and he's growing. Um, we've got a young team. I say even though we won this race, we've still got so much to grow and to learn. And we can continue to grow. We have a big debrief. And um, you know, my, my goal is to or dream is to go back to Suzuka as well. I'd like to go there with a new car. Um, and obviously we still have some points to refine. I feel also really gutted for the 911 guys because um, they also drove a faultless race and they were in the lead, they were winning the race and then uh, we lost the car for them, so um, that's, that's a bit of a shame. I have to also, another people to thank is also Monte Racing because uh, they were being a big help. I called Monte Racing and said, can I buy all the equipment that you have? So, um, you know, they've also been pretty awesome. Uh, Berno's been really, really cool. We had a couple guys help us this weekend, and they were absolutely stunning on the on the pit stops too. So, um, you know, it's been a whole it's a whole accumulation of everyone from the Porsche family making this happen in this victory. It's not just myself standing here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, congratulations. Enjoy the celebrations, and I'm sure we'll be seeing you on the racetrack pretty soon with a helmet back on. 100%. I'll be there in Sebring. Hi, this is Ranger Van Zander. You're listening to Sports Car 365 Double Stint Podcast. Back on Double Stint, thanks to Earl for his time. Hope you guys enjoyed that as well. Uh, let's get back now to answering listener questions as we wrap up the show for the week. Our first question, use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter. It's from Twitter user at jrive 4 who wants to know, 
Regarding SRO America, can you give us news on tracks and dates being discussed? Is West and East still a thing? All right. Well, we'll do our best to explain this to you here. Frankly, it's something I, that all of us are trying to wrap our heads around. It's It's been a lot of change in terms of nomenclature in the last six months or so. But here, here's my best explanation that I can give. Uh, the, the schedule for the year is all set. You can find that on the series website. The only thing that hasn't been announced is the grand finale which we understand has effectively been figured out where it's going to be, but for contractual reasons, the series can't publicize it, and we're kind of in the same position there. But uh, expect an announcement of that at some point here as we get closer to the season getting started. Um, As far as the the East-West thing goes, that basically is a a breakdown for Pirelli GT4 America. They have both the Sprint and Sprint X formats in GT4 this year. The Sprint X formats, you have uh, kind of a national series, if you will, but also two regional series, East and West, that are a bit of a lesser calendar and give teams more of an an entry-level avenue into GT4 racing under the SRO America umbrella. Uh, That does not affect GT3, which now races under the moniker of Blancpain GT World Challenge America. Many of these races will be held on on the same weekends, GT3, GT4, Sprint X, and Sprint, uh, in addition to the touring car classes as well. I I think the best way to get a grip on it is actually just to go to the series website, world-challenge.com, and uh, they've got a schedule posted there with all the dates of the events and the different series that are involved. It is very confusing, I'm afraid to say, but uh, like we've talked about earlier with the car count we're seeing in GT3, the interest in GT4 also seems quite high, and it sounds like uh, the, the touring car ranks are going to be pretty loaded as well for the upcoming season. So there is a lot of positive. I think that the major drawback of what we're experiencing in 2019 is everyone trying to understand the terminology, and there's probably too many series, to be completely honest. It's uh, a bit of a of a headache to try and fully comprehend. However, uh, again, like I said, there's a lot of positive things to look forward to as well. So hopefully that answers the question. The best way, again, is probably to go to the series website and, and take a look at things there. But as far as the schedule is concerned, everything is locked in. The only thing that needs to be announced is the grand finale at the end of the year in October. I'm glad you answered that, Ryan. <laughs> I think you said it in a good way. Uh, yeah, like you, like you said, it's a little confusing, but I think we're in for a great year in, in SRO America. Yeah, looking forward to getting back on that beat here in about a month or so. Final question for the week comes for a masked racer who wants to know, do you know or can you find out if the WEC in the WeatherTech series is going to take one big group photo at Sebring? Uh, honestly, I don't know, but we'll inquire and uh, hopefully get an answer for you. Excellent. Thanks for writing in. That would be a heck of a photo, though, if they could make that happen. It would be uh, a bit of a logistical challenge, I would imagine, but uh, it would be one that I think a lot of people would like to take home. Uh, A rare collection of some of that machinery on the grid at the same time. That would be cool to see. So looking forward to Sebring as well. Finally, do want to wrap up the show by mentioning we do have some new patrons on Patreon. Uh, Before we give them shout-outs, I'd like to point out that uh, just to make make this very clear, this podcast and everything at Sports Car 365 is still free to you. You don't have to pay for anything. Um, we'll continue to answer your questions, whether or not you are a patron on the show. But there are some uh, bonuses, I suppose you could say, for supporting us 
with the Patreon page, things like uh, uh, Google Hangouts and meetups at the racetrack. You can check out our Patreon page, and there's a link to it at the bottom of this post on sportscar365.com if you'd like more information about it. But we would like to thank... Danny Aaron, also Motorsports Beat, Nick Busato, Tony Calderon, Robert Brum, and Taylor Burris for joining up as patrons. We do appreciate uh, not just your continued listenership, but also your, your financial support. It is very much appreciated. And uh, if you folks feel the need, you would certainly appreciate you joining up to be patrons as well. Hopefully there's some awards and rewards, I guess you could say, for being a patron that would be worth your while and your investment. But if not, that's all right, too, and we'll continue to provide the same content to everybody, whether or not you're a patron of our SportsCar365.fm podcast network. So with that, John, uh, good talking with you. Hopefully you enjoy the rest of your trip out to Australia, and we'll be talking with you again soon. Sounds good. That's it for us this week. We'd love a rating and a review on iTunes. Also, be sure to check out our Sports Car 365 Daily Digest podcast. These are two- to three-minute podcasts every weekday with all of the headlines from the previous day or the weekend in the case of Mondays. Uh, if you'd like to check that out, it's a great way to stay on top of all the sports car racing news from the front page of sportscar365.com. That's it for us this week. Talk to you next week with our next edition of the Double Stint Podcast. Podcast.